Hello and welcome to the podcast for the September issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Alison Rowan from TLN to discuss some of the highlights. Welcome Alison. Hi Richard. And let's start with an important research article and this concerns the treatment window for stroke. There have been some changes in clinical guidelines recently, haven't there? Do you want to give some, some context to this? Originally, intravenous thrombolysis with alteplase was studied and was granted regulatory approval for use within three hours after onset of ischemic stroke. And in 2008, a randomised control trial known as ECAS-3 and an observational study based on an international stroke thrombolysis registry called SITS-ISTA showed that expanding the time window for thrombolysis to four and a half hours after onset of stroke is safe and effective. These studies triggered a change in treatment guidelines by the European Stroke Organization, the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association to recommend use of alteplase within this extended therapeutic window. Thanks, Alison. And this study provides an important follow-up, doesn't it, uh, before and after publication of the 2008 study. And, And it's using patients from the SITS registry. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So this study involves data from nearly 24,000 patients who were included in the SITSISTA registry from 2002 to 2010. The patients were grouped according to whether they were registered before or after the publication of the 2008 studies, and the investigators set out to establish whether the introduction of the longer time window had an effect on clinical practice in terms of admission to treatment time and safety and functional outcome. And summarise the key findings from the study. So after the introduction of the increased therapeutic window, there was a rise in numbers of patients treated, not only between the three and four and a half hour time frame, but also within three hours. Reassuringly, the time from admission to treatment didn't increase. So there was a median time from admission to treatment of 65 minutes for patients treated before and after the studies were published. But rates of symptomatic intracerebral haemorrhage and death were more common in the group who were treated in the three to four and a half hour time window than in patients who were treated in under three hours. And similarly, more patients in the group who were treated within three hours were functionally independent at three months. So what conclusions uh, can be drawn? I'm assuming it's reasonably positive in the sense that it's, if you like, it's real life confirmation, isn't it, that this wider therapeutic window is viable? Yes, that's right. And it's encouraging to see that the increased therapeutic window has not led to slower times to treatment. As the authors say, the increased risk of haemorrhage or death in the longer time window is outweighed by the benefits of treatment. But they do, of course, emphasise that patients should be treated as early as possible after stroke. Next, Alison, a trial which is investigating whether the use of vitamin supplements could actually be beneficial in reducing the risk of stroke after an initial stroke or TIA. So what's the idea behind this study? So there is evidence from epidemiological studies that high levels of plasma homocysteine might be a risk factor for major vascular events. And randomised controlled trials show that homocysteine levels can be lowered with supplements of B vitamins. But the question of whether B vitamin supplementation can reduce risk of further stroke in patients with stroke or transient ischemic attack has been unclear. So in the Vitatops trial, the researchers set out to investigate whether B vitamins would lower homocysteine and reduce risk of stroke, myocardial infarction and death in patients with recent stroke or transient ischemic attack. So Alison, just summarise the key methods and results, if you would. This study was a randomised double-blind placebo-controlled trial of more than 8,000 people with recent stroke or transient ischemic attack from 20 countries who were enrolled to receive placebo or B vitamins that included folic acid, B12 and B6. 
After a median follow-up of about three and a half years, B. vitamins appeared to be safe, with no unexpected serious reactions and no differences in common adverse events between the two groups. But incidents of major vascular events or death did not differ between the two groups. So this study does not provide evidence to support a policy of B vitamins for preventing recurrent stroke. So Alison, a negative outcome from this study. So what conclusions can be drawn? I think it's probably interesting to draw on the the thoughts of the author of the linked uh, reflection and reaction piece. Yes, this is a negative outcome. But as the author of the accompanying commentary suggests, even with large numbers enrolled in this study, it is possible that the trial wasn't sufficiently powered to detect a potential reduction in stroke. So this commentary author believes that the jury is still out on homocysteine reduction and argues that there is still a place for further trials and meta-analyses of homocysteine-lowering treatments in stroke prevention. Thanks, Alison. And finally, let's conclude with a review, and this is looking at autosomal dominant ataxia. Tell us, first of all, tell us about ataxia some, uh, in terms of its uh, epidemiology and some of its clinical features. So the autosomal dominant cerebellar ataxias are rare disorders that affect between one and three individuals per 100,000 people in Europe. These are progressive neurodegenerative disorders that have cerebellar ataxia as the hallmark feature with unsteady gait, clumsiness and dysarthria. But they are often not restricted to cerebellar ataxia and frequently involve other neurological signs which can include pyramidal or extrapyramidal signs, ophthalmoplegia and cognitive impairment, depending on the subtype of the disorder. In terms of the review itself, what's its remit, if you like? What's it trying to cover here? The idea behind this review is to document the similarities and differences in clinical features and underlying pathophysiological mechanisms between various forms of autosomal dominant cerebellar ataxias. Previously, it was thought that all forms of these disorders were polyglutamine expansion disorders caused by expanded CAG repeats in protein-coding portions of specific genes. But more recent discoveries of different expansions in non-coding regions and conventional mutations in genes for other subtypes of spinocerebellar ataxia have given rise to a broader view of the mechanisms involved. And Alison, can you go on and give us a few more details about the characteristics of this disease? So polyglutamine expansions, non-coding expansions and conventional mutations each give rise to several subtypes of spinocerebellar ataxia. And within these classes, there is considerable variability in the clinical features of the disease, the pathology and the mechanisms, depending on the gene involved. Broadly, Polyglutamine expansion forms tend to involve widespread neurodegeneration and diffuse neurological dysfunction, whereas in conventional mutation forms, pathology tends to be restricted to the cerebellum. The most common subtypes are the polyglutamine expansion forms, and for these, onset is usually in the third or fourth decade of life, with a life-threatening disease course. Conventional mutation subtypes are less frequent, and in these cases, onset is most often in childhood and the disease is not as severe, with little progression and a healthy lifespan. So what does the author conclude and, and how can we use this knowledge in the area of, of testing for ataxia? The author suggests that genetic testing for autosomal dominant cerebellar ataxias should generally be reserved for patients who have a family history of the disease, unless there is a specific reason to suspect this diagnosis. The differences between the polyglutamine expansion and conventional mutation subtypes highlighted in this review should help to guide genetic testing. Many thanks, Alison, for all your help with this month's podcast. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next month.